Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. As far as we can tell at this point, human subjectivity would not be missed. Which I just love that because, you know, we're so not special and life is meaningless. But then at the same time, that means life has any meaning you choose to put to it. Welcome to the One Up Project. Money is fuel that that allows you to do things. It doesn't need to be taboo. What you don't want to do is wake up at 65 realising you did something you hated and have regret. Go and find people who will give you advice for nothing. This is a space for personal growth and money chat with new perspectives every Monday. This bit of content, listening to this, is going to be a small little breadcrumb of something that makes them think a little bit differently. For all the things we were never taught but should have been. At the end of the day, the most important person is yourself. And if you're not happy with your own choices then you're never going to be happy. Kia ora everybody, welcome back to another episode of the One Up Project podcast. We're in the final part, part four of four of my series covering, summarizing, analyzing, processing Sapiens, a brief history of humankind. Wow, this series has nearly killed me. It's made me sick. It's like literally ruined my throat because I spoke for three hours straight trying to record the first three episodes and I've had to come back two weeks later, now finally recovered from that illness and to finish this off because it's such an important series to me for many reasons. It's such a huge desire of mine to remain informed about things, especially societal issues that I care about, uh, all societal issues really, I want to make sure that I remain curious, I remain compassionate, I remain empathetic, I remain a listener and can help myself and other people open up their minds to new ideas. Last episode we spoke a lot about colonization, the impacts of that and how capitalism developed what it was and in this episode we're going to talk about the ultimate impacts of that on our happiness what is happiness how do we measure it what does satisfaction in life look like how can we be more content in life how am I going to try and be more content in life what have I sort of learned from that just a wrap up of everything and that will be it I want to thank you if you've actually listened to all four parts of the series I was a little bit worried that it wasn't going to be that popular just because it is quite different to a lot of what I usually talk about but this kind of discussion really sits so close to my heart and although I know I'll look back on this episode potentially in six months and just cringe at everything I've said I want everyone to know that all all of these episodes come from a place of pure curiosity and trying my hardest to stay informed and it's not to say anything I say is correct I've always wanted this podcast to be a place where I could ask any quotes dumb questions on behalf of all of us and and sit here and process that information with you and we can learn together for all the things we were never taught but should have been was such an original part of this podcast and history was something I never gave a shit about and I really should have because it impacts everything today and it's so interesting. Today then, let's get on with it. I want to start with a quote from this book. So far, historians have avoided raising questions around the impact of historical events on humans' happiness, not to mention answering them. They have researched the history of just about everything. Politics, society, economics, gender, diseases, sexuality, food, clothing. Yet they have seldom stopped to ask how these influence human happiness. We can congratulate ourselves on the unprecedented accomplishments of modern 
sapiens only if we completely ignore the fate of all other animals. Much of the vaunted material wealth that shields us from disease and famine was accumulated at the expense of laboratory monkeys, dairy cows and conveyor belt chickens. Over the last two centuries, tens of billions of them have been subjected to a regime of industrial exploitation whose cruelty has no precedent in the workings of planet Earth. If we accept a mere tenth of what animal rights activists are claiming, then modern industrial agriculture might well be the greatest crime in history. When evaluating global happiness, it is wrong to count the happiness only of the upper class of Europeans or of men. Perhaps it is also wrong to consider only the happiness of humans. So how do we actually measure that happiness though? You know, what does it mean? Is satisfaction the same as happiness? I often wonder that because happiness seems fleeting. It's a fleeting emotion. It's there and then it's gone. You're happy about something. Oh my God, I'm so stoked. And then it settles and you just feel mellow again. Is there anything wrong with that? Like, should we be aiming to feel happiness all the time? I almost think no. But then the high feels so good, you know. I want to feel happy all the time. But maybe I need to get more comfortable with just feeling satisfied, content. But then does that mean I start to be more ungrateful because I'm just accepting of my current reality? I'm not pushing for more that the society says I should be trying to progress towards all the time. But that satisfaction, it seems sustainable. So should we be aiming for contentment over happiness? Or does contentment equal happiness? My thoughts are that it works like a bell curve. So material items and wealth give you that contentment and satisfaction up to a point. Or maybe it's just uh, safety and security. But once you have that, you realize that life isn't just about that for you that's not what contributes to you wanting to stay in this world living and thriving often you know billionaires or wealthy people there's the common quote money doesn't equal happiness and then there's the common response well that's easy for you to say because you have money or I'd rather be crying in my Ferrari than my Toyota Corolla or whatever people say and it actually always confuses me when people say well that's easy for you to say because it's like exactly exactly and that's why we should be listening to them it is easy for them to say because they've had that they've had that opportunity they've had that resource and it's still not enough where we go wrong as a society is we don't believe them and we say well it's easy for you to say that but if it was me in that situation it wouldn't be as easy for me to say that anymore. I just feel like that makes no sense because like the point of having money is that they do have that resource. They do have that freedom, that financial freedom that so many of us want. But we want it because we don't have it and we think it's going to produce X, Y, Z. Whereas we're not listening to the person who has it, who has used it to provide X, Y, Z. And they're still not satisfied and content. And I'm not talking about people who don't have money in the poverty scale I think we all deserve obviously resource and money to a point where we can survive comfortably but I'm talking about people who have an excess of cash versus those that just live and survive it seems like a lot of what this book has it comes back to in its research around what makes a happier person is community strong relationships with other people it talks about there being a strong correlation between happy marriages and the well-being of people generally and that holding true irrespective of someone's economic or even their physical conditions so if we choose to continue to progress and grow at the expense of our personal relationships 
then maybe we're only destroying our chances at being truly happy. This this part of the book that I'm about to talk about and what it says leads to happiness is one of those realizations that takes the spark and the magic out of life a little bit. You know, when you hear things like sometimes I just choose not to believe things because I'm like, oh, that just, you know, the realities of that just ruins the this magic of life a little bit, even though it's the truth. Uh, but you can tell me what you think about it. It says, the most important finding of all is that happiness does not really depend on objective conditions of wealth, health, or even community. It actually depends on the correlation between objective conditions and subjective expectations. So this is what you have versus what you think you are going to get, what you want. It's saying if you want X and you get X, you are content. But if you want X and get only Y, you feel deprived. And so maybe then the thing holding us back from happiness is the self-comparison looking at you, social media. When I'm having a conversation with my friends and I hear one of them's going to Europe, I think, oh, that's so great. Maybe I could go to Europe one time. I'm a little bit envious of you, but at the same time, have a great trip because I want to see you thrive and you be happy. If I go on social media and I see 300 of the 500 people I follow are on the Euro summer trip and it's back-to-back stories of a Mykonos sunset and beach party, I'm going to be thinking, my life fucking sucks, even though I love my life and I have had opportunities to travel to other places that I've loved. But right now in this time, I'm, I'm directly comparing my life to their life and thinking my objective conditions is that I'm working from home and it's raining outside. My subjective expectation is that I'm young and I have no dependents and I should be traveling and I should, even if I don't have any money and I should be out there on a Euro summer like everyone else is. So is that contributing to my unhappiness? But if happiness is a matter of expectation and we believe the saying, what is that saying actually? Keep your expectations low, like expect less, expect less and be happy about, oh, you guys know what I'm saying, but the concept of keeping your expectations low, maybe it's not a silly saying, maybe that's actually extremely relevant, but then how far do you take that? Sure, maybe I, I wouldn't compare the fact that I have a Toyota Corolla and my friend has a Tesla, but then what about comparing my toxic relationship to their healthy one? Isn't that a comparison for positive change? I'm unhappy in my objective situation and my subjective expectation is that I should be in a good relationship. So I don't completely like the idea of having low expectations for life being the key to happiness. But then on the other hand, it's like, okay, you could also say, well, you know, stay grateful. Stay grateful for what you have rather than keeping your expectations low. But then my potentially capitalist mindset thinks, well, what's wrong with wanting more? There's nothing wrong with with wanting more in your life and desiring that progress. Or is that just something that's been built into me through the culture I live in? But then we've just, we're basing our, our view of people's potential happiness on what's going on in their life when we all know it's a highlight reel so it's so deep 
in our mindset. This example it uses in the book is quite interesting. In modern affluent societies, it is customary to take a shower and change your clothes every day. Medieval peasants went without washing for months on end and hardly ever changed their clothes. The very thought of living like that, filthy and reeking to the bone, is abhorrent to us. Yet medieval peasants seem not to have minded. <laughs> they were used to the feel and smell of long unlaundered shirts. It's not that they wanted a change of clothes, but they couldn't get it. They had what they wanted. So at least as far as clothing, clothing goes, they were content. Adding on to that, everyone around them was in the same situation. So there was no, there was no need to compare because their thought never went outside of their current situation whereas we have every opportunity now with access to social media to see lives outside of our circle of our existence and there's pros and there's cons to that because that's where ideas are born that's where imagination is that's where creativity is I think outside of of your own current existence but then that's maybe also where a lot of unhappiness is as well The next kind of aspect of what determines happiness this book discusses is the biological reasons for why some of us might be naturally happier than others. I've never ever heard this before and I didn't actually know that this was a thing but essentially what the book is saying is that some of us are just biologically programmed to live at a higher degree of contentment than others. I'll read you out this part of the book to explain the concept. On a scale of 1 to 10, some people are born with a cheerful biochemical system that allows their mood to swing between levels 6 and 10, stabilizing with time at 8. Such person is quite happy even if she lives in an alienated in an alienating big city, loses all her money in a stock exchange crash and is diagnosed with diabetes. Other people are cursed with a gloomy biochemistry that swings between 3 and 7 and stabilizes at 5. Such an unhappy person remains depressed even if she enjoys the support of a tight-knit community, wins millions in the lottery and is healthy and is as healthy as an Olympic athlete. Indeed, even if our gloomy friend wins 50 million in the morning, discovers the cure for both AIDS and cancer by noon, makes peace between Israelis and Palestinians that afternoon, and then in the evening reunites with her long-lost child who disappeared years ago, she would still be incapable of experiencing anything beyond level 7 happiness. Her brain is simply not built for acceleration, come what may. How interesting is that? And it's kind of funny when you think about it like there are people you meet in life that are just oh they're such a bubbly person you know they're just always happy and then you meet people who you know you think oh they're always in a bad mood they always seem in a bad mood but maybe that's just our biology we can't change it someone might be stoked but it's like their level seven stoked whereas my stoked kicks in at level nine or something and and it's so much more obvious so all of these things are just theories you know it's not to say that any of these things are true or what creates real happiness it's more just potential correlations as opposed to causations so naturally the discussion of what makes people happy leads to the discussion of what is the meaning of life what is our purpose why are we on this earth which so many of us have completely different perspectives on which is amazing and I want to share a bit about what this book says it essentially holds the perspective that within all these different theories about what makes life meaningful there's always going to be good and bad we can't live a consistently happy life all the time what meaning do those bad moments have in our life so the example the book gives is about bringing up a child and one of the experiences done was um, people talking about their days and often when people would bring up their child if they had a child it turned out to be rather unpleasant 
And so the question it asks is, despite all this unhappiness associated with bringing up a child, most parents will declare that their children are their chief source of happiness. Does that mean that people don't really know what's good for them? And it leads on to talk about how the values of a person make the difference to whether that parent sees themselves as, quote, a miserable slave to a baby dictator or as, quote, lovingly nurturing a new life. Then says, if you have a why to live, you can bear almost any how. So a child might bring you immense unhappiness in many different individual moments, but what is the meaning of that child overall? What kind of purpose are they bringing into your life? And does that create an overall sense of contentment, happiness and joy? Medieval peasants um, a lot of the time believed that they that there was an afterlife. And so even though their life by many perspectives, especially in a modern context was horrible and really rough they saw it as completely meaningful and worthwhile because they believed that there was peace and paradise in an afterlife again when I say the book is ruining my perspective of world the world being magic and enjoying that there are some mysteries in life it says as far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint human life has absolutely no meaning humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan and if planet earth were to blow up tomorrow morning the universe would probably keep going about its business as per usual as far as we can tell at this point human subjectivity would not be missed which I just love that because, you know, we're so not special and life is meaningless. But then at the same time, that means life has any meaning you choose to put to it. So I think there's two kind of perspectives you can take on that. One that is completely pessimistic and sad and the other that opens up a world of opportunity. So really, as, as humans, as homo sapiens, we have the choice of what pieces fit into our view of purpose and no one is to tell you that that is or isn't right. So who are you as an individual in that sense? What does your life mean? Well, one thing this book talks about is that most people wrongly identify themselves with their feelings, thoughts, likes and dislikes. You know, when they feel angry, they think, I am an angry person. And so they associate that is a part of their identity. They consequently spend life avoiding some kinds of feelings and pursuing others. People don't realize that they're not their feelings and the relentless pursuit of particular feelings, like happiness, traps them in their misery, ironically. And there's a quote that people are not their worst moment. That has sunk in so much more than ever before, especially after reading this book, because so often we associate who we are with our feelings, like how we respond to things, but we are not our emotions you know those are our reactions to things that happen and life is a matter of choosing which pieces fit and don't fit into the truth of who you think you are for me the truth of who I am is something I've been trying to unravel for years I'm 24 but I feel like I started trying to work out who I was from a really young age like I went through this thing um, in year 12 of high school so that's the year before technically you graduate and I was in this massive slump of probably the most sad I've ever been in my life where I just felt like life had no meaning I had no purpose I used to call it thing I have no thing everyone has their thing and I don't have my thing and it kind of wasn't until I started the podcast that that part of me slipped away a little bit because I felt like I found a bit of purpose. With the podcast came that continued effort of what is the truth about who I am? So what's the truth about you? What have you discovered is 
the bits and pieces of what you consider a good life and how do you fit that into the way you live even with all the pressures of the culture that we live in and guys that is going to sum up you know my perspectives on on the book some of the things that stood out to me ultimately are the seemingly similar cycle humans seem to go in of living in a certain way and I don't mean you know we've obviously progressed so much from agriculture to industrial pursuits to science capitalism and growth and progress but the cycle the cycle overall is the same we're always trying to grow progress make things more accessible make things easier for our species to be able to remain at the top of the food chain to continue to strengthen and bless us like bless us so much for wanting to do that but then man there are a lot of things we don't hold ourselves accountable for there are a lot of lives that have been ruined not just human animal as well what am I saying humans are animals I need to get rid of this perspective I have how would you even other species other than humans I guess And I think it's biological, you know, the biological mission of every species, the way we're designed is, comes down to advancing and growing our species, staying on top of the food chain. I'm reading a book about sleep at the moment and the importance of sleep and how evolution has dictated what that looks like and why sleep is so important to our survival. You know, you can die with a lack of sleep and it's so horrible to put your body through sleep deprivation. But with these natural things that have been created for our survival, for our advancing, we introduce these other elements. We introduce the bed and the pillows and all the shit that's supposed to help make that natural thing easier or better. But why did it have to change? I'm not saying I want to sleep on the floor outside. Absolutely not. Especially because I'm I'm used to the bed now. I'm used to the pillows. I'm used to the warm house and the heat pump and all of those things. But I think it's just an interesting question to ask yourself. With every new accessible tool, process or resource, we become so much stronger. We become larger in every materialistic measure imaginable. But as a result, do we then become weaker emotionally and maybe even psychologically as well? I haven't even touched on mental health in this series at all, really. But the evolution of human health, uh, the evolution of mental health would be really fascinating I suppose it'd be quite hard to measure though. This book has made me want to be more conscious about the things I I do say and create because you might think you're doing something golden for society, but is it, you know, if I think about some of the projects I'm working on at the moment, the businesses I want to create, be a part of, because it has to be a business within a capitalist society for it to grow and to progress and contribute to our economy, but is it actually helping people? For the long term, not just now, not just in the next 50 years, in the next 50,000 years. I also think another thing that stood out to me in this book was the conversation about what is, in air quotes, natural and what it actually means biologically has changed my perspective on the purpose of our bodies, what the purpose of our bodies is physically as well as how cycles of prejudice begin. I hope this as a result has impacted my subconscious bias, any prejudice that is left I'm sure there's lots of it. I don't want to be biased. I don't want to be prejudiced. But I think it's only ignorant to think that you don't have that. We're all subject to different realities in our upbringing and our life experience. And it could never encompass everyone's experience. So naturally, we will have prejudice about things. I think if people, like more people, had an understanding 
not even of science, but just the development of the human species, it would open their eyes to a lot of realities of how we have lived and how things develop and change. And that's okay. And they change dramatically. You know, if people learned that we once lived in a world where rape was a property violation and not a human violation, maybe some of those prejudices and expectations, particularly for women, where they still exist, they would be different because we would think about the cycle of how those perspectives impact people long term, not just about what it is in that particular moment. But then at the same time, it's not to shame anyone for saying those things or believing those things because it has happened, it has been a part of their reality, but it is to hold them accountable. It absolutely is to hold people accountable to their own prejudice and their own ignorance. There'll be so many things that we look back on as gross, unethical and unjust in years to come, which again just emphasises to me that no human is ever perfect. Most of us are just working within a society that we were born into, trying to survive. Those of us that weren't born into it have had to adopt it and are now trying to work out what their identity is within it, also trying to survive. So give yourself and give others more breathing room, compassion, empathy, and maybe we can only then work together to create more prosperous outcomes for people that help to progress and grow society in the positive way that we always wanted it to initially anyway. If you're listening to this, I love you because you've taken the time to listen to this series and to something pretty heavy and pretty comprehensive and you're listening to someone who's just trying to work it out herself. Can't wait to have more conversations with you about this. I probably talk a lot about it on TikTok and maybe even threads now that that's up and running. No doubt we will speak soon. Thanks so much, guys. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The One Up Project. If you want to find more stuff just like this, check out our other apps or follow us at The One Up Project on Instagram or TikTok. See you there.